Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hey there, everybody. Jim Henson here. Welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the last week of June. I'm happy to be joined again this week by my colleague, Josh Blank. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Do you have enough water over there? I have just, just enough water. Okay. We want to keep things equal here. Are you ready for the 4th of July? Pumped. Pumped. That's because you're a patriot. I am a patriot. I find 4th of July is always an underestimated holiday in some ways. New Year's Eve, expectations always way too high, never met. 4th of July, particularly in Texas, excruciating heat, fireworks, decks. Yeah, you you just just grill. Just grill a bunch of food. Just grill and hang out. And gossip about politics, which we'll start doing today. So we want to start today with a Texas angle on a story in the national headlines, and that's the the ongoing thrashing in the U.S. Senate over health care and a bill to do something with health care and Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act, and especially Senator Ted Cruz's role in it. The senator's been getting a lot of press over a somewhat odd set of moves for him, maybe. And you've been pretty interested in this, right, Josh? Well, I'm like, I'm always interested in Ted Cruz. I'm in the Ted Cruz business. And so having kind of followed him from the beginning, you know, and watched his brand sort of, you know, form and blossom and really, you know, take hold through the presidential run to now, it's really interesting to see where he's found himself in this debate. And, and, you know, he either is or being or he's being portrayed as kind of the the conciliator in this and this sort of this sort of odd role in that he's both one of the people outwardly against the bill did so early with a group of three other sort of conservative senators saying that they weren't able to support it currently, but is also being portrayed as the one who's going to like get them over the finish line in some ways. And this kind of goes back like a month or so, like where this kind of started coming up, this idea that Cruz was, was the guy. And it was because basically they were holding, they were apparently holding the meetings where they were hashing this out behind closed doors. Apparently those doors were his doors and it was his conference room. But what's kind of become even more apparent is like maybe he wasn't actually in those conferences. They were just using his office. Because he didn't seem to be any further out on the bill than anybody else. And all the other people that were complaining about not knowing anything. Right. And so he's been out there kind of saying, you know, how do we get to yes has been his kind of thing. He's got sort of four points about how he gets to yes. But what's kind of really interesting to me about this is, one, it's odd because his brand was actually made kind of on being, uh, one, an insurgent who wasn't going to play, you know, by these sorts of rules. And two, you know being one of the major proponents and one of the major forces against Obamacare, right? right? And now he's sort of trying to adjust, you know, a bill that people are call, called Obamacare light or that really kind of extends or continues a lot of the Obamacare provisions and that he's going to come in and somehow save it. It's just a very odd... Yeah, he's talking like he's a getting to yes kind of guy now. And I guess just to provide background right. for people, you know, Ted Cruz was elected in 2012. He had been solicitor general and he was kind of a you know, one of the intellectual political leading lights of the Republican conservative movement in Texas. The Tea Party movement. Um, you know, he rose very much as a favorite, yes, of the Tea Party conservatives. He beat um, 
uh, somebody that was not an incumbent U.S. senator, but beat somebody that was an incumbent state holder, David Dewhurst, who at that point was lieutenant governor, had a lot of money and was seen as kind of the heir apparent to win that Senate seat. Cruz comes not out of nowhere, but certainly out of comparative obscurity by rallying the conservative base, wins in 2012, and then goes to Washington and immediately becomes one of the you know, strongest voices of conservative opposition, not just to the Obama administration, but he runs very much on this this argument that's very familiar now. Um, I mean, I, I think he might even have used the drain the swamp term when yeah. he ran. The idea that things were just broken in Washington, D.C., and that there was absolutely no value in getting along to go along, that he was there to shake things up. And that's why, as we talk about this, Having Cruz be the guy going, well, you know, we, we're just right. working to try to make something happen here. O- outside Very of, odd. Outside of Texas, he's far more known probably for the 2013 government shutdown over Obamacare. Right. And calling, you know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell a liar on the Senate floor than he right. is for any sort of legislative accomplishments or his ability to work with colleagues. I mean, if anything, his inability to work with colleagues is probably one of his most known traits nationally. So the idea that now all of a sudden he's being portrayed as this conciliator, it's an odd thing for, you know, one, just having followed him this long, and then also just, you know, his brand. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me about this is to the extent that he's obviously welcomed this and invited, I mean, you know, he even had an interview at the Tribune, I think a couple weeks back, where he, you know, used the the dreaded C word, compromise, right, right? Uh, over these bill. So how much does he own the outcome, which he really has no control over? Because part of the issue here is, is that he sort of has been the leading voice for the conservatives who are against this bill. But the conservatives are a little bit less of a problem than the, than the Republicans from either moderate states or states that have expanded Medicaid or even less moderate states, but sort of rural, poorer states like West Virginia and Alaska that need these Medicaid dollars to make their right. healthcare systems run, where those senators have also said they can't. Uh, really push forward. So anything that Ted Cruz really gets that's going to bring him along is actually going to drive it further away from these people. And I, you know, sort of the question I pose kind of just for, you know, thought here is, you know, what is, does this do anything to his brand going forward? Is this, does this represent a permanent shift to the way that Ted Cruz sees his role as a Texas senator? Or is this just, you know, the politics of the moment and, you know, and taking the opportunity? I think that's, I think that's the big question. I think, you know, as we've talked about the poll in the last couple of weeks, you know, Ted Cruz has very strong numbers among the most conservative factions of the Republican Party and is very has very negative numbers among Democrats writ large, always has, but they got even more negative after he ran for president. I mean, for Democrats to know Cruz more was to hate him. Right. Um, and that's there's nothing too unusual about that. But I do think, you know, you raise a good question. I mean, my my sense is my expectation would be we'll see him play this out. It's very unstable. Who knows how it's going to end? I think it's most likely they get nothing. And Cruz can point to this as one example of when, you know, that he's not completely disagreeable. But that in short order, he, he will find something else or another couple of sets of issues where he will try to get some visibility being some version of his old self. Yeah. Um, but it does raise, you know, broader questions about public opinion in Texas and where how Republican conservatives or conservative Republicans position themselves. Like, is there a an outer bound at which point people kind of say, well, at some sense, I can only go f- so far out on this before I've got a at least backfill a little bit 
in a more institutionally agreeable way. Yeah. And I, you know, it's an open question. Yeah. And, you know, and the answer also for his actions could be really simple, which is just, you know, it's different being, you know, in the minority versus the majority and, yeah. you know, it prevent, provides opportunities and that kind of thing. I mean, the other thing is, is what's also interesting is that he's not feeling the pressure that a lot of other Republican senators are feeling from governors and states that have expanded Medicaid. One, Texas right. hasn't expanded Medicaid. Two, you know, there's no statewide elected Republican official here who, you know, has really made any notable mention about what the Senate's been up to on yeah. health care as far as I've at least that I've read. Um, and part of that is because in a lot of ways, you know, for Texas, I mean, the real sort of big thing that has been driving this is sort of the cuts to Medicaid and how many people will lose coverage under those cuts over time and immediately. Right. And in Texas, Medicaid is just, you know, it's a poison pill in general. Yeah. I mean, it's basically big government welfare spending. But the, there's a sort of a, a reason for that, which is it's just such a huge part of the Texas budget. Right. I mean, even so far that, you know, in this legislative session, the legislature kept cuts in place that they had made in the last session, which like lowers basically the fees paid for therapists for children with disabilities. Right. Children with disabilities. That's right. what people and would and scream, if you feel right? politically safe in cutting something like that, you know, you're tapped into something. Yeah. I mean, that you know is out there, and I and I think yeah, even the even the so-called moderates in the in the Texas House, with very few exceptions, you know, nobody really stood up. You know, and complained about that when that cut was made in the budget. Right. We should say, you know, Medicaid federal program, you know, winds up operated by the states with some funding and, a, and usually and complicated, complicated rules and formulas for matching funding and things like this. And, um, you know, while the Democrats complained kind of loudly, there were when those cuts were made in the in the budget, that wasn't something that the that the majority party really debated very much. Those, I think, the the speaker said something about hoping in the future that there would be some renegotiation. But the renegotiations with the federal government, the conservative baseline here really is a desire yeah. to minimize funding in programs, well, social funding programs And the overarching like environment here is the fact that they didn't face a real serious backlash over it. I mean, the optics of it were terrible. Right. And they kind of were and they I think they reacted to that initially, but they haven't really faced a backlash over it. And also Texas, you know, historically and continues to have one of the highest uninsured rates in the country. And it's not you know, it's not like anyone's running Republicans out of office here yeah. on account of that. Yeah, no storming the ramp the ramparts on that. Okay, so uh, on another topic, but sort of at the now also we're, we're at in the, Texas now, right? Also at the intersection of of federal policy and state politics is um, right up to this morning. There have been recent hearings in the lawsuits against SB four, which was the anti sanctuary cities law that also included this the so called show me your papers provision. Uh, as well as a new set of rules that you know, prohibited cities from limiting police departments in their enforcement of federal immigration law. Right, right. So basically, in particular, you know, the idea is the sanctuary city is one that won't cooperate with immigrations and custom enforcement. So immigrations and custom enforcement says, oh, you have this person in jail. We'd like to talk to them or we want to deport them or, or whatever. So will you hold them? Hold them for us. We'll be there Eventually, Sometimes and, it and this really does depend. I mean, this is one of the right. big issues here. You know, if it's a big city, they're probably coming by every 48 hours. If it's some rural county, you know, it could be a while before it, they get out there and pick this person up. And so some, you know, cities had sort of passed, you know, it basically created policies that allowed for, you know, let's say not 100 percent cooperation and Austin being the most 
obvious, but technically yeah. no cities in Texas were actually sanctuary cities. It's not actually really a term that has a clear definition. Yeah, just to it's be, more of a term be, of art than... Right. Yeah. So, you know, some people could believe Texas is full of sanctuary cities. Other people could say there are no sanctuary cities here. It seems that depends there are, on your definition. Yeah, we could get into that, but let's not. So anyway, but the hearing started this week, and there are a couple interesting things about, you know, these, these hearings. I mean, the first is, uh, you know... Where does the public stand on this? And let's just, just it's kind of our, our, our bailiwick here. So let me just real quick, which is overall in terms of requiring local law enforcement entities to cooperate with federal immigration authorities. That's approved by 58% of Texas voters, but by 86% of Texas Republicans. Similarly, allowing police officers the right to check immigration status during any sort of basically detainment. So this could be whether someone's arrested. It could be during a traffic stop. Basically, right. any time a police officer has a you reasonable right. You pull over right, for a broken taillight, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. They can ask about, they can check on immigration status. Or at least they can't be prohibited from checking on immigration status. Right. That was supported by 53% of Texans and 87% of Republicans. So as far as like where you know the state is on this, slight majority favors both of these provisions. Overwhelming majorities of Republicans favor these provisions. The interesting thing that's kind of about what has happened is this, is that, you know, pretty quickly after this law was passed, the cities in Texas, all the major cities except for Fort Worth, basically started deciding whether they were going to fight the state on these laws. Now, their, their arguments, you know, could be myriad, but the main, most direct one is that it's sort of another kind of, you know, unfunded mandate. It puts them into precarious legal situations that they're going to have to then defend themselves right. against. You know, they have to hold these people for some amount of time. It's a drain on resources. It's a drain on resources. And there's further arguments about whether these laws are, are good or not. Most of the police forces are against being right. immigration Particularly agents. the big city police right. chiefs, for the most part. But the interesting thing in some ways about this, and sort of bringing this into the bigger picture here, is that this is sort of seems like a pretty big escalation of sort of this city versus the state dynamic, right? right? We've seen some sort of small things where, you know, Austin passes a bag, plastic bag ban. Denton passes a, a ban, you know, against fracking, right? And then the legislature comes in and says, no, you can't do that. This one's kind of interesting because this isn't, you know, this bill, first of all, isn't necessarily, even though it's called sanctuary cities, isn't necessarily directed specifically at the cities, right? I mean, it's just right. directed at any sort of law enforcement agency in the state. But what's interesting is that all the cities at once, say Fort Worth, have said, you know, we're going to basically band together and try to fight this. And that seems like a, a pretty big escalate, escalation on this city-state dynamic. What? Why do you think that's the case? Like, Is it this issue or is it just everything? Well, I mean, I, I think it's, you know... This issue is a really convenient spot for the people that are fighting the cities and the state for, you know, I mean, the governor is leading the effort, really, mm -hmm. when you come right down to it to be direct. Um, but because public opinion is so one-sided, and it also has this federal piece to it, which is a little bit unusual. It is it's very you know, unusual. For this, because it... It actually involves the state government kind of siding with federal authorities and federal laws when it's usually the other way around. Right. They're actually ceding a certain amount of discretion to the federal government. But, I mean, I, I think you've gotten it why this is, you know, happening in this front. It's, you know, I mean, public opinion is so, Republican public opinion is so on the side of the people that are pushing these policies that it's a winner. And we saw this in the legislature. If you go back to when they passed this bill... This was one of the bills, you know, during the legislature, there were all these fights between different factions, a lot of them inside the Republican Party. This was a Democrat-Republican fight, mm -hmm. you know, period. And it underlines, you know, just how urban the Democratic Party is now. So so is that why Republicans don't like the cities? <laughs> well, Because they're just so Democratic? Well, you know, I, I, I think that's a fair question. I, I think it's, it's a lot of different things. I think there is this developing theory 
among Republicans that state government and should be the preeminent sort of arbiter of of laws, rules, and by extension of you know kind of what the what the state is like. Mm-hmm. And it you know the fact that the, the cities are populated by Democrats is a big piece of it. You know the flip side of that is that Republican constituencies you know, are largely rural, largely suburban, and there's a lot of points of friction with the cities, whether it's, you know, financial over taxes and over costs. Yeah, annexation. You know, this this issue of annexation, cities going in and, you know, without, arguably, without much checking or without local permission, annexation is when the cities go and they claim land that's adjacent to the cities and assert jurisdiction over people there and the tax base. Usually um, they're providing services before yeah, that point. Which yeah, is yeah. The, the flip point is, yeah, they're also, you know, it's usually arg- an argument about cost or some other kind of functional need of the city, right? So I think there's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a natural dynamic here that is reinforced by the politics as they've sorted out in the country and in Texas that that makes sense here, um, and we're going to see that in we're going to see a lot of these issues coming up in the special session that's going to start in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, you know, setting aside the, you know, let's say people's policy preferences or, you know, moral feelings or anything about that, about this SB4 fight between the cities and state, you know, this is not a good issue for the cities to pick to unify against the state against. I mean, just, you know, just thinking about it and what we said, laying out those numbers, I mean, a majority of citizens of the state sort of support these provisions. I mean, you know, it was pretty clear going into the legislative session that like a sanctuary cities bill would be passed. A lot of times when, you know, it seems like sophisticated players know if something's going to happen, then you say, well, how can we limit the damage? Right. And in this case, they just, I mean, the city's response was to just basically be against it. And then it got worse and worse and worse. And now they're going to fight it in courts. And I mean, it seems, you know, I'm, I only play a lawyer on podcasts, <laughs> podcasts. Uh, but I mean, it seems like really highly unlikely that the, the courts are going to overturn this. You know, I mean, on any of the grounds they're kind of talking about, I mean, just in terms of the fact that the cities are creations of the state, discrimination, potential discrimination is really yeah. hard to rule on. Discrimination by police officers, real, imagined, future, past, extremely difficult to prove. You know, all these issues, it just seems, you know, and the unfunded mandate thing, like, you know. Yeah, I, I think the discrimination grounds is probably the best bet they're going to have, but probably not in, until there's evidence of it. So well, even, in other words, to preemptively get it thrown out before there's evidence of things happening is going to be difficult. I yeah. Think. Well, and the other side of it too, is that, I mean, with, with the way that, you know, police can use discretion in applying laws, you actually have to usually show the intention, like the, right. the I mean, it, it basically gets down to the point where a police officer almost has to say, I did this because this person was Hispanic. Right. I mean, that's basically what you need to prove discrimination. And that's, going to be pretty much non-existent yeah it's pretty it's pretty hard um so i mean i think we'll you know we'll see more on that um that said i suspect you know right now this the status is there's been a stay ordered by a judge mm-hmm. in a federal court there's a there's a there's an Aust- the hearing in austin before yeah. the federal judge here he's been in the middle of a ton of different things judge sam sparks mm-hmm. Um, he's been in the middle of redistricting they cases, judge abortion. cards, because these like these judges come up again and again. If yeah, you follow and, and Judge Sparks has been in the middle of a lot of stuff. So we'll watch that, and we'll we'll talk about that next week. I want to close with one more kind of Texas proper thing, and and uh, Ross Ramsey's been on this podcast for the last two weeks. Local Ross, celebrity. 
he's a local celebrity among the the geek among the geek crowd. Uh, but Ross has a piece in the Tribune that was, you know, who says when anything is published. It appeared on the web, I think, technically last night, but uh, Tuesday night or Wednesday night, Thursday morning. And it's called A Governor Belatedly Setting the Legislature's Agenda, in which, you know, Ross looks at the special session looming up and kind of makes the argument that, that, Greg, that Greg Abbott is really trying to drive the agenda um, very actively. He's finding bill sponsors. They're visiting actively with members of the legislature. Yeah, and even the process by which he's going into the, you know, he hasn't called a special session yet. Everybody knows the first thing is going to be this sunset bill to keep right. agencies open. And then he's going to trickle them out. The other sort of calls as it goes along to control exactly. Right. What... And Russ makes a little, a very insidery kind of mention that, you know, by, by sequencing the bills that way or trying to, it's almost as if he passed his own rule. And mm-hmm. by rule, he means... You know, the, 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 the way that legislation is structured in the legislative process. So it's a little suggestion that the governor is asserting himself in the legislature. And we've talked about this a little bit here. Um, but not to, not to argue with the wise old owl of the Texas Tribune. He knows a lot. I would be very reluctant to. Yeah, and, you know, I'm pausing. But it does seem like, you know, Ross is missing the institutional piece here a little bit. And, the, and he's not the only one. I mean, I think there was a... A discussion that went on that we've talked about a lot during the legislature where people kept complaining that Abbott wasn't assertive enough, that he wasn't he wasn't present. Um, but it does seem to me that he's picking his spot. And Ross does make the argument that this is it's kind of a unique play. I just think, as you mentioned before, we were talking about this and I'll, I'll mention this as use in case Ross hears this. Yeah. But there is a little bit of a straw man here. The idea that that Abbott somehow was extraordinarily weak or underplaying his hand in the session, when frankly, you know, he does have a lot more leverage now and he's using it. The Constitution doesn't give him a lot of leverage during the session, right? Right. I mean, I think that's that's the thing that's been going on. I mean, throughout, you kind of mentioned it, but I'll, I'll reiterate it, is there's been this sort of somewhat quiet to, you know, moderately loud rumbling about, you know, Greg Abbott's sort of ineffectiveness at the beginning of the session and sort of during the session. And and it's sort of it's an odd thing because the you know, the governor has just this limited set of powers, right? He can declare emergency items and then people can act on them or not. I mean at right. that point, right? He has no power over whether bills get assigned to committees what happens to them, whether they get passed, whether they make it through the calendar. And so this idea that like during this period in which he has zero control over what goes on. At least formally. In a, yeah. in a co-equal branch. Right. That he's going to, you know, that he's somehow being ineffective by not, you know, putting himself out there more. It's just always an odd argument. Yeah. And so to say, to sort of contrast now where he actually does have the constitutional powers to call the special session, call it when he wants, call it as often as he wants and specifically tell them the only things that they are allowed to work on are these things that, that this like yeah. that in and of itself is a really interesting use of the power that he has at this point in time but in no way compares to the power that he didn't have you know basically for the entire session up until this point right i mean that's just not the same thing right. it is interesting looking ahead though i mean abbott was i think in you know in his first term during the session or the first session after the 2015 session you know, he didn't call a special session it wasn't really i mean there were some grumblings but there's always kind of some grumblings yeah. everybody everybody who doesn't get what they want kind of wants a special session he didn't do it i don't think he wanted to he wanted to show business as usual you know on that first term new lieutenant governor new governor right 
you know, it's going to be interesting to see, one, how this plays out, whether it, it works in the way that he thinks it's going to, which is in some ways to kind of assert himself as, you know, in, in people's minds at the end of the session is the one driving policy in the state in a way that the lieutenant governor has been right. trying to do the whole time, basically. Um, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, assuming he's governor again, which is a safe assumption right now whether this becomes a ploy of his going right. forward. I mean, I think the one thing that Rasta that I really liked was, you know, it might be addictive. Right. You know, I mean, once you realize that you get to basically control everything at this point in time. That could be a bug that becomes a feature. Yeah. Right. In software terms. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, part of the point, I guess, of raising this too, is that, you know, for people that, that are, if you start following these things and you're, you know, as a consumer of media, there's a, there's a habit in political coverage to very quickly and in the moment pick winners and losers in the moment. And then it winds up shifting really rapidly. I mean, it goes back and forth. I mean, so if in five weeks uh, they conclude the special session and of the 19 items, what's the number at which this was a successful ploy or an unsuccessful ploy? Or right. Is it a number? Is it just... If they pass, you know, a few of the things that have been gotten the most media coverage, then can you declare victory and exit the field? Or do we have a whole other round of stories about how weak and ineffectual Abbott is and how this was a bad play? And I think, you know, you often have to really step back and think about this as not being a game that necessarily has such a fixed set of winners and losers and how important it is to focus on that, or whether it's more important to get a more nuanced understanding of how a bunch of different things, especially the rules and institutions, function in this play, and in this good, field. And that's a good point. And, you know, and that's something I think, I mean, it sort of parallels what's going on at the national level, actually, to bring it back to the beginning, right? A, a bunch of Republicans at the national level right now, senators, are sort of looking at the way that Trump celebrated with, uh, you know, Republican House members in the Rose Garden among, after passing that bill. And then, you know, a few weeks later, called, called the bill mean. Yeah, called the bill mean, <laughs> right? And so, you know, I think, so when the... This week, when they basically decide they weren't going to vote on the health care bill this week in the Senate, you know, Trump basically pulled all the senators, you know, all the Republican senators to the White House to basically talk about it. And the attitude, I mean, the, the, you know, it's interesting reading sort of the different takes on how those meetings went. But the attitude coming out of it was, you know, well, we can't really trust this guy to have our back, you know, even though he's pushing us and saying that he will. And what's interesting here is there's some, there is some talk about that with Abbott, with Republicans, right. too, in the legislature right now. There's some idea that you know, he, he's you know, made some veiled threats in the 2015 session that he never really followed through on, didn't really go out and do a lot to support you know, incumbent. Right. He made both veiled threats and promises that in the capital community, at least the gossip sort of is, the general feeling is he didn't go out and campaign for candidates right. in and, the legislature. And, and your sort of point that, you know, there is, you know, just sort of look in the moment and say winners, you know, who's the winner and who's the loser is kind of the wrong way to look at it. And the other way, the reason it's kind of the wrong way to look at it is this is what we call, you know, a repeated game, right. right? The House members are looking at the, you know, the House members and the Senate members, especially the you know, Republicans in the House are looking at the governor and looking at his demands and saying, okay, well, what happens if we do half this? You yeah. know, does he call us back for another session? Does he call us back for three more specials? I mean, when, when do we right. get to the end of this? But also, they're looking ahead a couple months, you know, basically, you know, some number of months into the campaign season and thinking, if I'm helpful, is he going to help me? If I'm not helpful, am I going right. to, you know, face any sort of retribution? And everybody's kind of doing this in this environment that's constantly moving and evolving in a way that's going to be, you know, 
it's going to be interesting. I think, you know, the governor's getting a lot of really, a lot of credit right now for the way he's kind of taking charge of the session before it starts. <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little, it's a little less clear to me how he ends this, as you brought up, and what that looks like both for him going forward, his relationship with these other actors and players in the process, and, you know, basically how it's all received right. and when everything is said and done and people try to evaluate this, not necessarily as a winners and losers thing, but kind of like, yeah. so what does this mean going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing to notice institutionally about this is that in a way that I think is more pronounced than we've seen in the last decade, certainly during the Perry period, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of clear branch you know, branch-to-branch branch antagonism right now. I mean, the legislature and the executive branch are not getting along. Mm -hmm. And they're getting, and, and it's much more in the open. That's always there. But it's much more in the open right now with the governor having called the legislature lazy and, and the legislature feeling like the governor doesn't deliver for them. Yeah. So we'll know a little bit more about some of these issues next week. That's it for this week. Thanks for being here, Josh. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back. Have a good 4th of July, a safe 4th of July. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. 